is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, it's not too long until we see the 3G network in Australia switched off. Farmers are pretty worried, but Telstra says they're managing the issue. Yeah, we are. And um, I'm not surprised. Uh, as I sort of said, I was around in the Central West back when we closed the CDMA network and launched 3G. And we had the same concerns. Back then, though, we had to build a network from scratch, the 3G network from scratch, and the handsets weren't mature handsets. They were produced and they weren't great quality when we started. The difference this time is the 4G network has been around for nearly nine years. And we'll hear more about that story shortly. You might have some comments about that as well. You can send us a text 0467 922 684 about Telstra coverage and the move from 3G to 4G. And also, we're going to hear about the deadline looming from a farmer who's deciding how far he's going to take his fight with Energy Co over compensation for the construction of transmission lines through his property. You might want to comment on that too. 0467 922 684 is the number to text is here in the country hour but first up it's not too long until we see the 3g network in australia switched off and the move has created a fair bit of angst for some people particularly those in rural and remote communities where 3g is the only type of reception you can get mobile services across the state are being upgraded to 4g ahead of the change so what's it going to mean and what options do you have to ensure that you have mobile service chris taylor is the regional general manager of telstra in southern new south wales and he spoke to tim fuchs about the change amid all of these concerns the 3g network and the technology is designed primarily to carry voice traffic and and sms traffic um, and back then a little bit of data um, and for uh, it suited the purpose for the day because we ate, we probably only had a small percentage of people who had mobile phones. And um, since then, though, what we know is there's about three or four devices in every home. Um, people's um, consumption of data and the demand for data is growing at about 30% each year, and the 3G network just can't cope with that. Um, and this is why we launched the 4G network back around eight or 10 years ago. And now we're moving into 5G technology because they're much more capable of handling uh, data consumption and data traffic. Uh, and we need to move our customers onto the 4G and 5G technology so that they can continue to enjoy um, that experience uh, as we move forward. So it's a really important change in technology and uh, one that we knew was going to come when we first launched 3G that there was going to be an evolution, but that's the idea of it. We don't want our customers to go backwards. We want to keep uh, investing in the network and making sure we can keep up with their demands. As you travel around New South Wales, uh, and you know, if you just keep keep an eye on your phone, or you notice that you often do drop back to 3G, let alone the option of having 4G or 5G, but it's in some areas it's hard enough to get 3G. So there will be people come June because you just simply won't be able to upgrade, you know, all the sites up to 4G at least. But so there will be people come June who simply won't be able to use their phone because the 3G network is no longer working. Is that right? No, that's not the case, and that's never been our intent. We committed back in 2019, so we've, it's nearly five years ago that we announced we intend to close the 3G network. We committed that we will build the 4G network out to provide the same or better coverage. And, and what that means is 
where you can actually make a, a call on the 3G network now, a handheld call on the 3G network outdoors, and our published coverage maps show that there is handheld coverage there, you'll be able to do that on 4G. Uh, but what people have to understand in it, there are, we know that there are areas of black spots where you can't get mo- any mobile coverage now. Mm. This is not about improving that. This is just about making sure that people where they can access the 3G network now, they'll be able to access uh, that on the 4G network come June 30. But it may require them to change the kind of phone they have because that, that's this is some of the words that I'm hearing from some farmers who say, look, they've they've got a phone that works fine on 3G um, where they are. They don't need it for uh, mobile data. They don't even send text messages. They just need to make phone calls. Um, yep. So there will be some requirements to change the kind of phone that you have? That's right. There's a small percentage of customers out there. So when we're investing in the network end to get it ready, what we need to make sure is that our customers are ready at the at the device end. And there are a small percentage of customers out there who have old uh, handsets that were produced back before 4G was available. So they're only capable of uh, using the 3G network. We have some customers who've got some of the early 4G handsets which weren't capable of using voice. Um, and we have just some customers who've got the right handset, but they've got the settings incorrect. They've got their handset forced to 3G. And there are a range of blue tick handsets on the market now starting at $60 and, and, and working up depending on the type of handset. So, um, yep, we, we, we do need our customers in some instances to do something at their end, but it's all part of uh, technology change and advancement. I notice you're speaking to farmers about this, uh, including in a meeting in Bathurst next week. Are you hearing, uh, you know, from those on the land how confused some people are, maybe even worried people are that they won't be able to, you know, make calls after this all happens in June? I mean, are you hearing this from people? Yeah, we are. And um, I'm not surprised. Uh, as I sort of said, I was around in the Central West back when we closed the CDMA network and launched 3G and we had the same concerns. Back then, though, we had to build a network from scratch, the 3G network from scratch, and the handsets weren't mature handsets. They were produced and they weren't great quality when we started. The difference this time is the 4G network has been around for nearly nine years. We're just building the coverage out that little bit further, and the handsets have been on the market now for the same period of time, very mature, uh, and they work, and we've got a lot of confidence in that. And I completely understand that uh, people who've been through previous technological changes uh, are going to have reservations, um, and that's that's part of change. But we've just got to continue to help educate uh, and make them feel comfortable about the change. Regional General Manager of Telstra in Southern New South Wales, Chris Taylor, speaking there to Tim Fuchs about the change over from 3G to 4G. We've already had a text on it. Someone says... They've got a 4G phone which transfers to 3G and uh, H plus when 4G is not working, but then also says, remember, it's digital is impacted by extreme weather, clouds and storms. MBN doesn't work when the power is out. Uh, customers need advice, not more devices, says Mark from Beechwood. Uh, so he's a bit concerned about some of the comments being made there from Telstra. And uh, we're joined now by Deb Charlton, who is the New South Wales Farmers Rural Affairs Committee Chair um, about what farmers think about some of these changes, some of the concerns that they have. Good afternoon. Welcome to the welcome to the country hour. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate you having me on. Has your phone been running hot when people can get service about this move from three G to four G? 
Look, it has. We've had a lot of concerns raised in regards to this changeover and how it's going to affect farmers. And I think the, the biggest problem we have is that a lot of the phones out here in the bush, actually, when you look at the phone, they're on 3G and they're working. Um, and I'll give you a prime example. I actually went with the Riverina Anglican College Ag team over to Goulburn um, to the show over the weekend, which was a great little show. Um, unfortunately, though, my phone sat on one bar of 5G and I couldn't do a thing over the weekend um, as far as business operations on my phone. Right. So it, it, obviously there is this concern out there, and yet we're hearing from Telstra, oh, you just need to tweak some things on your handset and maybe, or maybe buy a $60 phone. Um, you know, what's your response to that? Look, I'm glad to hear that Chris is going to go out to Bathurst and consult with farmers. Um, I think he's going to get a lot of information out there. Might get a bit of a shock. I think he will because it's not just the phones we're relying on. A lot of the technology that farmers are using actually do rely on the 3G network. So a lot of our tractors are all and headers are all primed there using the 3G network, a lot of our water monitors. So there's a lot... We've actually got a lot of work to do between now and June, and I don't think we have the confidence in Telstra and other companies that this is going to be an improvement, and hence there is a hesitation. Yeah, and I guess that when you mention the machinery, changing those things over from 3G to 4G would not be that simple and not that cheap. No, definitely not, and it, and it's very confusing, and, and we're actually at the whim of these um, like the places like John Deere, where they are sending out notifications to their customers and saying that you're going to have to upgrade to the 4G and buy different modems. Um, and they're only just sending that out now. So they also obviously don't have that confidence that this is going to go ahead and be an improvement. And I know Telstra keep telling us, if we can turn the 3G off, um, 4G and 5G will improve. But can we, can we believe that? Mm. So yeah, that's so. There's a trust issue there. Then that even when you, if you do turn the three G off, you might get nothing. That's right. Yeah, it, because back when they turned off, I know we mentioned the CDMA, and back when they turned that off, we basically we had phones that could send a phone call or send a text message. We don't use them like we do the today, which is running a business. So we definitely need that assurance and reliability. And he talks about black spots, and it's unfortunate to hear that he says this won't improve that. It'll just improve when you've got where you've got a connectivity. And I'd love to hear Telstra and other um, providers say when they're actually going to listen to rural and regional New South Wales and understand that we live differently out here and that we need connectivity. It's very vital for us. Well, that raises the other issue which I had which immediately sprang to mind is the issue of emergency calls and uh, uh, farm safety, deaths on farms, injuries on farms. I mean, is it going to be a safety issue? Oh, it's a safety issue now. So that's the hesitation. They keep telling us we've got to do this to improve it. Um, But for the fact is, for us out here, we just hear that we're going to lose something we're not hearing we're going to gain anything. And definitely emergency services, um, where are our women by mobile phones? Um, hundreds of kilometres sometimes away from emergency services. So we definitely need that reliability. Mm. And so you think it's a bit rich? You think farmers are a bit sceptical, a bit uh, concerned when Telstra says, oh, you just need to flick a switch or buy a new $60 handset and it's easy fixed and um, you know maybe, maybe farmers are overreacting a bit. That seems to be what Telstra is saying. Oh, 
I mean, and Telstra will turn around and tell us that you can't buy a cheap handset. That's when you don't have connectivity. You've actually got to buy mm. a decent quality um, handset with the every bell and whistle on it to ensure you get connectivity. And then we hear them say, oh, no, if all you need is a $60 phone. So it's a little bit of a concern that this is maybe a gain for Telstra and not a gain for rural and regional New South Wales. And maybe you're getting mixed messages there and, you know, it's a, there's a question as to there's a trust issue and maybe also a, an issue about whether or not you're getting all the information you need. That's it. I don't think they've got all the information they need. I think they really need to engage with rural and regional New South Wales a lot more than just one meeting in Bathurst. So I hope to hear they're going to have a very broad consultation yet. And the other issue that has been raised by some other people is that the extension of the 3G network, they're concerned that, uh, okay, you might put in 4G in some of the more populated areas, but it will not extend the way that 3G does now. No, that's right. And that's the guarantees we can't get. And that's the issue. Everything's evolving. Um, our digital connectivity and everything that relies on it, it's changing constantly all the time. It's not like a TV 30 years ago. You bought a TV and it was around for 10 years plus, where now you buy something um, electronic and you're lucky if you get three years out of it. So this is the question. Are they going to say it's going to improve? And in 12 months' time, they're going to change something else and we're all going to go out and buy something that we think is going to work and still not going to work. Deb Charlton, appreciate your time on the program today and uh, we'll keep, uh, we'll keep uh, contact with you to find out how some of those meetings and some of that uh, response from farmers goes in regards to these changes. Lovely, appreciate that. Thanks, Michael. Deb Charlton, who's the New South Wales Farmers Rural Affairs Committee Chair about the issue of the move from... 3G to 4G and you can send us a text and let us know about uh, your concerns. Maybe you've already contacted Telstra. Maybe you've got some issues already. 0467 922 684 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the deadline is looming for farmer Stuart Hackney to decide how far he will take his fight with Energy Co over compensation for the construction of transmission lines through his property. The lines are needed for the switch to renewables and there's a significant income stream that's to be paid to landholders. But there are also some big issues facing farmers hosting these lines. David Clawton asked Stuart Hackney what was planned for his property. Yeah, we've got three transmission lines which are going to cut the property completely in half, uh, two 500 kVAs and a 300 kVA, taking up approximately 40 hectares of our 260 hectare property. And was there some negotiation about where those transmission lines would run on your property? Not really. The um, maps turned up here one day on the table and yeah, they told us not to worry, they weren't going to be close to our property and then... All of a sudden, got an email from a bloke from Energy Co. And yeah, they changed their map, so they had it running straight through the middle of the property. They uh, couldn't even be bothered to turn up and tell you properly, just send it on an email. And so were you able to negotiate on that at all? We've been trying to negotiate for 15 months. Um, we've finally got one little bloody change with the line. But um, What's yeah. that? What do they agree to do? Oh, they've agreed to move it about 60 metres to move, miss some infrastructure, but yeah, they're still going to take out all our shade trees in the regeneration area. How long since you planted those trees? 
Oh, they've been there since we owned the place. They'd be a couple hundred years old at least. Wow. Okay, so that's a significant loss. That's going to be a significant loss. There's a fair amount of shade that they distribute. So have they compulsory acquired your land, or are you still trying to avoid that and come to some agreement? Yeah, we're still trying to avoid that. We've all got our pans. Um, if we were to find it through the value of general, we've got to sign up by today to do it. Today? Uh, yeah, we've got to be signed up, I think, by today or tomorrow at the latest. Um, we've got to the 15th to negotiate the other deals, but nobody else, nobody's really wanting to negotiate. Energy Cal come with their come with their dollar figure, and that's all they want to stick on. Uh, got what's the what's the dollar that. figure, Stuart? Are you able to say? Um, our initial figure was 1.5 million, but we're back down to 670,000 plus. They've added on 260000 to put some shade structures up to cover the trees they want to rip down. So it's, it's wow, that's a big drop. What caused the drop in, in compensation? The fact that they changed the line a smidgen to get it away from the silos and cattle yards, that all had to be removed from the compensation package once they decided to take that little move. And how many people would be in the situation that you're in with with maybe having succeeded at a small change, but it's cost them several hundred thousand dollars? Uh, you're, you're not sure how or when this is going to be resolved, but you've got to sign up today. Well, if you want to fight it through the value of general, you've got to sign up today. Um, we probably won't go down that track, but some people are thinking about doing it. Uh, just in our little area here, I know of eight or nine people that are severely impacted either having power lines running past their front door or power lines running over to their house. Um, not 100% sure how many of them are going to fight it, but, yeah, it's starting to take its toll on the people. They're not real interested in it now. They're just saying, throw the money at us and we'll get out of it because, you know, everyone's just about out of gut full of it now. And you're saying uh, the, the Land Acquisition or the Just Terms Compensation Act is, is an issue for you. You'd like to see that changed. What, what are you hoping for? Well, the Just Terms Act doesn't cost, doesn't give you any leverage to ask for any compensation due to loss of production or income. The Just Terms Act was set up for acquisition of railway lines and roads, not actually a lease of a power line going through your property. So you can be compensated for the loss of some land, but not for the activity, the economic activity that's on it. That's correct. And what impact would that have on, on your activity, do you think, on your business, if, you, if those lines went well, through? Well, they've given us a four-year construction period. So to lose 40 hectares for four years, they can't name their date when they want to construct it. So you can't actually go and farm a paddock and sell a crop in it because they're just as likely to turn up and say, we want that land now. Have you put a dollar figure on that impact, that cost? Well, I was working on roughly 90 grand a year for the for the 100 acres. You know, we're going to lose production. We can have grazing rights under the lines, but we haven't got farming rights under the lines because we don't know when they're going to be constructed. But So no yeah, cropping? Still, well, what's the point of putting a crop in if they're going to destroy it once they start to lay their working platform down and come through? And the other issue, I suppose, is that you... You would get paid for having these transmission lines running through your property, wouldn't you? If you if you got a figure on how much you'd be paid for that? Well, once the power lines are constructed and they're operational, they're offering $10,000 per kilometre for 20 years. How many kilometres on your property? 
1.83 kilometres on our property. We've got three power lines running through us, so I think we're about 54 grand a year. It will take a bit. That's a pretty good income. You're not happy with that? Not a bad. Oh, that's not a bad income, but it's only 20 years. Um, the thing they're flashing around now is some of these renewables, they reckon some of these wind turbines are worth 50 grand a year and they're only going to take up a hectare of your property. So them guys are going to be sitting pretty, whoever's signed up for them. Farmer Stuart Hackney speaking there with David Clawton now. Uh, he says there are 360 submissions in response to the environmental impact statement and there are several other farmers in his area affected. Energy Co's spokesperson says that the company has acted in good faith in working to reach agreements with landowners. This has often included extensive changes to the initial proposed easement. The majority of landholders have already successfully negotiated in principal agreements and Energy Co is reaching out to farmers and their legal representatives to clarify the situation. And on the text line in regards to the 3G and 4G changes, um, we've got a text in from Graham. He says, you only have to look at the maps of phone coverage to see that 4 and 5G is not as good as 3G has been. My 3G often works when others of later variety will not. It's all about the volume in the cities for 4G and 5G, says Graham. And another text has come in saying, could I ask the Telstra guest uh, where we're going to get these $60 phones that he said were available? Now, that actually did occur to me because I know I've certainly been out shopping to try and get some cheap, a cheap phone for my daughter because uh, she's always losing hers. But anyway, they're pretty hard to find at $60. Let me tell you, anyway, he's uh, saying, is that... Uh, do you buy those phones at the same shop where you can buy unicorns? And um, Chris says the 4G and 5G sing- signals do not travel as widely due to the two-signal frequency. Uh, and if you're going to have the same coverage, you're going to have to have more towers to have the same uh, coverage on um, 4G or 5G than you do on 3G, says Chris. So that's just some of the texts coming through. There's a lot more texts out there, and we'll try and get to a few more later on in the program. Well, saying goodbye is a hard thing to do, and it's something that the Amos family know all too well. For five generations, they've bred merino sheep at Burrenbar on the New South Wales-Queensland border at Mungandai. But after 130 years, the final chapter has closed. The property sale has recently been finalised, and the last goodbyes have been said. Lara Webster has this report. Closing the gates for the last time was bittersweet for Les Amos. It signified the end of his family's farming history at Mungandai, but it also represented the next phase of life for him and his wife. The girls have actually had some teary moments about it, but to this point we've been that busy trying to sort things out and unpack things and get involved in different things that we just haven't had time to... um, think about it too much. I mean, it was sad driving out that last time, knowing you're not going to come back. But, yeah, life moves on and we've got to sort of start anew if we can. What was it like? I mean, when we spoke last year, you'd made the decision to sell the family farm with uh, your daughters all in different careers off farm. You had come to terms with that decision, I suppose, when we spoke then. But... To finally have closed that chapter on 130 years or so, five generations, what what was that like to, to finally come to grips with that when you signed the contracts? 
Yeah, well, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, we, we obviously put a lot of thought into it before we did that, and we had lots of family discussions, and, and everyone had to be comfortable with it. There was no point in us just doing Annette and I doing our own thing. We wanted to make sure everyone was happy. Uh, and, and like I think I said before, we they've all got careers of their own. They've got families of their own now, and uh, like they were sad, but at the same time they understand the situation that no one wanted to do it. And uh, I mean, one of the difficulties for Annette and I was it, it is fairly remote. You are uh, on not great roads, black soil roads still, so. Yeah, it was just, we were getting to an age where it was just all a bit too much to, to handle, really, I guess. It certainly is exciting times ahead for all of you. And I have caught you, Les, while you're, you're taking a break from your tennis. Um, but <laughs> before we, uh, before I do let you get back to your game, one big part of our conversation, of course, around all of this, and you touched on it briefly, and, and we did speak about it a lot last year, was that succession planning. We know there can be a lot of anxiety and difficulty around that for a lot of families. But what would be your advice now having been through this journey and and I mean you had sort of as you say you had lots of discussions to get there everyone was on the same page but what's your biggest advice for for anyone who who might be listening well talk talk it through I guess everyone in this situation has different ideas I guess and um I, yeah I, I think you've got to come to com- compromises sometimes I mean I'm not a I'm not a succession planner, I don't know, but uh, everyone's got to be happy and you've got to look at the other person's interests to a degree. Yeah, but I suppose one of the things I've seen over the years is where families have torn themselves apart over property and that's not something we we wanted. I, I certainly wanted to break that cycle. I, I just don't, didn't want to um, have any bitterness, as, you know, between family members. And I think that's the hardest thing sometimes is there's just not enough property to share around, is there? And so there's always someone feels they've missed out a bit or uh, perhaps didn't get what they should have got. And, you know, it's very common. It's a very common problem, isn't it? So I don't know. I suppose, yeah, talk it through and be open and honest about how you're feeling about what you want to do. Well, it sounds like good advice to me. Les Amos, I could not let you go without asking. Your daughter, Annabelle, did pen quite a beautiful poem about Bar and Bar. And I, yeah, wanted, to, I wanted to ask your thoughts on, uh, on that poem. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, she's captured her heart about the place. And yeah, I thought it was very clever what she's done and very um, thought-provoking. For Les's daughter, Annabelle Hudson, penning that poem gave her a chance to relive treasured memories growing up on the farm. But I'll let her recite the words for you. Goodbye, Bar and Bar. As the sun sets on this significant phase, I'll remember all those special days at the place I'll always call home, where kangaroos, emus and sheep would roam. Beautiful paddocks of buffle green, contrasted by droughts never before seen, A brown snake moving across the grass. I've never seen Jane move so fast. Riding our peewee through the pine or zooming on the quad until dinner time. Rolling round in puddles of mud, paddling Dad's tinny during a flood. 
Mum's daily drive to get us to school, 50 k's each way and thousands in fuel. A memory not even Evie will forget, getting bogged in the red lane when it's really wet. In the Triton or Suzuki learning to drive while Dad shoveled cotton seed to keep sheep alive. Shearer's Helen and Barry bringing us lollies and Dad's obsession with Dunlop bollies. Marie from Cambo bringing baked goods for dinner and homemade pony camp where everyone's a winner. Impromptu sleepovers with school friends, the locks, riding my horse Tiggy with the white socks. The green back door slamming shut, catching Ellie's finger, causing more than a cut. All the cats, dogs, horses and guinea pigs as pets, but getting my black cat buttons, one never forgets. Shallow damn water in the retro pink bath, riding scooters and rollerblading along the footpath, eucalypt bark falling from the gum, inflatable canoes and leeches at the dam where we swum, Sarah falling from the ute breaking her arm and climbing the tank stand causing mum great alarm. Edwina's horse Loxy saying, I want to go home. She's holding on tight, hoping not to get thrown. The Mooney is where I caught my first fish, Jane frying it up as a tiny side dish. Bringing friends home for more a party, hand-making fairy costumes like we were arty. Too many stories to list here, so many memories I hope will stay clear. But no matter where I'll be, near or far, I'll always remember my first home, Byron Bar. Sounds like they're going to miss it. That's Annabelle Hudson reciting her poem that was written about her childhood home, Burren Bar, and they've left it after 130 years, a final chapter being closed. It's uh, coming up to 25 minutes to one. Uh, still getting lots of texts about the Telstra 3G, 4G uh, changeover issues, so uh, keep them coming in, and also transmission lines as well. So you can always send us a text, 0467 922 684 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But right now, let's get some news headlines now from Adam Story. Good afternoon. Afternoon. Uh, <laughs> a lot of talk about a roof on the uh, Olympic Stadium uh, following the Vegas doubleheader. Um, I d- <laughs> I don't know. I like wondering. I like watching. Well, I like sitting at home watching rugby league <laughs> when it's raining. You like to have a roof somewhere. Yeah, you know, a bit of a wet ball. Anyway, so apparently a group of business leaders are going to put together a case, obviously uh, for the taxpayer to uh, foot the bill for a weatherproof roof on the Olympic Stadium. And this is after the uh, opening double header at uh, the big stadium there in Las Vegas. Um, he said uh, the Premier says it would be a good idea, but whether it happens will depend on uh, the cost. Mm. Um, oh, so, funny that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe perhaps other priorities. Uh, the major re- uh, One major retail company is facing legal action after failing to meet its advertised uh, delivery times. Uh, the... Uh, proceedings against Mosaic Brands, and they own Rivers, Cadies, Rockmans and Millers. Uh, that action is underway in the federal court today. It's under, alleging that the retailer breached uh, consumer, law, consumer law by failing to deliver hundreds of thousands of products uh, on time. Some brands failed to deliver goods within the advertised time frame or within a reasonable time frame, or not at all. Mm. A bit of a well, that's not reasonable. That's not reasonable at all, <laughs> not getting at all. No. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, new data has revealed nearly uh, 3,500 investment uh, website scams have been shut down by the corporate regulator since July last year. Uh, it's, 
the uh, schemes uh, were basically shut down before they were actually able to lure any suspects. So it's a bit of a proactive thing where they've sort of probably trolled the internet. Uh, a lot of that stuff comes up as, you know, advertisements on Facebook mm. or YouTube advertisements. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. yep. Usually with an AI-generated celebrity endorsing it. Yes, um, I've seen them. Yes, yes. That's, and if it's, uh, mm. it's always with investment advice. If it sounds too good to be true, yep. it probably is. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, there has been a settlement between the ACT uh, government and the Liberal Senator and a former Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds. She launched action over comments made by the former Director of Public Prosecutions, Shane Drumgold, uh, relating to the uh, Brittany Higgins case. Uh, they've now paid Senator Reynolds $90,000 and formally apologised for Mr Drumgold's comments. Uh, now, just getting back to the rugby league, there was an on-field incident mm. and the Sydney Roosters prop Spencer Lenu has now been charged for allegedly using a racial slur against the Brisbane Broncos, uh, Broncos player Ezra Marm in the team's uh, opening round clash. Uh, he's been charged with contrary conduct and referred straight to the judiciary. Mm. So it's a bit of controversy to kick off the season already. <laughs> already. Yeah. And, uh, it, that, but that didn't happen in Las Vegas. That happened here, I think, before Las Vegas. Is that right? Or did it happen in Las Vegas? So it's here it happened in Las Vegas. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Okay, so I wonder if it's yeah. getting any it was the in the US. Oh, US I'm US. sure it's yeah. making news in... Uh... Which is probably not what they want. No. Mm. Mm. That's right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, you'll be back at one o'clock. I'll be back. Okay. Adam Story back at one o'clock. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details now. Chris Webb at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good day, Mike. How are you? Very well. Thanks for being patient. Uh, now, uh, what's happening with the weather? We've seen, we saw some, you know, pretty hot weather, you know, over the weekend. Then we saw some showers and you know, windy weather. Have we seen the change come through the state? Yeah, it's travelled through most of the state, and most of the state is milder and actually a bit drier than it's been. Um, but but the trough is still in the northeast, kicking off some um, fairly widespread showers up that way, and uh, there's even the risk of a thunderstorm uh, towards the in the northeast towards the Queensland border this afternoon. Um, Sarah's rainfall totals go since 9 a.m. Uh, I noticed 20 millimetres at Dorigo, the highest fall, and uh, 18 at Bower or Sugarloaf. 24 hours to 9 a.m. We had a couple of um, uh, thunderstorms as well mostly about the northeast, and there was a spot total of about 60 millimetres up that way, Mount Seaview. Um, but, yeah, the rest of the state, as I said, are fine. And um, for the next couple of days, the next, for the rest of the weekend, the weekend, really, there's not a great deal going on, apart from the trend, uh, a warming trend for west of the divide. Um, so a new high-pressure system will move into the Tasman Sea for tomorrow and just gradually move eastward, and there'll be an inland trough develop, and so there'll be a northerly flow over the inland parts of our state. So warming up as a result. Yeah, mm. gradually increasing over the next several days, so that by Thursday, Friday, there'll be some spots in the west getting up around the 40-degree mark, and that'll carry on across the weekend with no sign of a change uh, right through to you know, um, Monday next week, based on the guidance that we have at this stage. Right. What about the coast? <clears throat> the, so that's the, the inland? Like, yeah, that's the inland. So coast and ranges looks like much milder. Um, there'll be a high-pressure ridge from that high over the Tasman and out in New Zealand, longitudes, high-pressure ridge affecting the coast, and so um, the remnants of the change, I suppose, and then coastal sea breezes 
for the rest of the week should keep the temperatures in the main down you know into the mid to high 20s some places just inland from the coast into the low 30s on some days but yeah the the hot weather in the main looks as though it stays west of the divide this week. As far as rainfall goes, you know, really nothing much to it beyond today. Um, as I said, there'll be, you know, like there's a bit of weather around the northeast today, less so um, for the next several days, but the odd shower still. Looks as though there'll be a few thunderstorms about, um, looks like central ranges, western slopes, and about the southeast as well uh, Thursday and maybe even the northern ranges but yeah very hit and miss few and far between so any rainfall will be very localized and a few showers and thunderstorms about the southeast as well on Friday um, and we should start to see a few showers pick up about the north coast again on Friday and over the weekend nothing special with that mm. but yeah it's quite a change you know um, there won't be much as much convective weather uh, this next week as what we've seen uh, last month and early this month. Okay, so but uh, sort of a marked change in the pattern. By the but way. for the inland, it's going to be a um, pretty hot start to autumn. It is. Mm. That's 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 right. Mm. And hot and dry by the mm. looks of things predominantly. Okay, yep. for at least till, for the next week for the for inland. The week. Yep. Yes. All right, Chris. Thanks for that. No worries, Michael. Chris. Bye-bye. Chris Webb at the Bureau there. It's 18 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, lots and lots of uh, texts coming through about uh, the uh, Telstra 3G, 4G issue. Uh, someone's texting in saying Telstra's not telling the truth. They took their concerns to Mark Colton, the MP, got a five, level five complaint, but in the end they found ignoring me, not replying to emails, etc., was better. Um, so, uh, yeah, a whole range of issues there that they took up with the, with Telstra. And there's a whole bunch of other texts there as well. Might try and get to some of them a little bit uh, later on in the show. It's uh, coming up to 18 to 1, as I said, now to our ongoing coverage of the detection of brawler fly in New South Wales at DPI's Tamworth Agricultural Institute. The DPI had previously confirmed to the ABC that the parasite was found in one of the Tokal queen bees. It's since corrected that information and says it was found in one of the alcohol washers conducted on the 26 hives at the centre and not, and still and uh, uh, so not in the Tokal queen bees. And still on the um, ruler fly issue, the DPI says it's not a significant pest for beekeepers. A commercial uh, beekeeper from Coots Crossing in the far north coast disagrees quite vehemently. Di McQueen Richardson told. Kim Honan, that the damage caused by its burrowing larva will reduce the value of her honeycomb product quite substantially. Look, it is disturbing. It's just another pest um, that shouldn't have been allowed into the country. Uh, beekeepers are already facing, you know, rising costs and all sorts of issues, as well as having to deal with the varroa mite incursion that has occurred recently. So this new pest on top of that is just um, its just devastating for the industry. The DPI are saying it's a, a minor pest, uh, insignificant uh, for beekeepers. Do you agree? No, I don't. You know, it, it, it doesn't directly harm the bees, but it can... It can compromise a hive because they they're fighting for the food sources and resources, so the the queen can become compromised, the hive can become weakened, and it's just something else that we have to deal with. Let alone the damage that it actually causes to honeycomb, which may not be an issue for commercial beekeepers that are just 
chasing honey. But for those of us that sell actually honeycomb in its beautiful form, it no longer looks so beautiful. And unfortunately, um, customers are fairly particular about the way it looks and would not be at all impressed with the the damage that these um, pests create in that comb. So that's one of your main concerns as a honeycomb producer? Yeah, definitely. Look, it it commands a high price because of the quality and unfortunately, if it's compromised, the the value of it decreases significantly. And um, you're concerned about the unsightly uh, appearance that the the brawler fly larvae actually leaves on the honeycomb when it tunnels uh, underneath the, the caps. Can you describe that for me? Yeah, so it just, I mean, if you've ever seen a beautiful frame of honeycomb, it's a, a work of art. It really is. And it looks fantastic. But as soon as you start getting those tunneling things happening, um, the honey is not as secure as well. So it can start to leak. Um, and then you might have some, ex, some, some actual cells that are empty, which would also make it very unappealing. The honey, comb, the honey would leak into the comb container as well, which you don't particularly want. And people are fussy, you know, if they're paying premium price for a quality product, they want it to look beautiful when they put it on their grazing platter or on their cheese board. So it significantly reduces the, the value of that product. Diana McQueen Richardson from Honey Bee Hives at Coots Crossing on the North Coast, 14 to 1. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, the shares in one of the largest medicinal cannabis growing businesses have been suspended since Friday due to concerns about its debts and future funding plans. Warwick Long spoke to rural reporter Elsie Kennedy for the details on the future of Can Group, which produces medicinal cannabis in northwestern Victoria. Can Group is one of Australia's biggest medicinal cannabis producers. It was the first company to be issued with a research licence for cannabis in 2017, that was just after medicinal cannabis was li- was legalised in Australia in 2016. It's got a big glass house in Mildura, and on Friday the ASX suspended the shares of Can Group. It said on Friday that that was due to a report by an independent auditor, which said there was in- insufficient evidence of future funding for Can Group. Now Can Group released. Uh, a financial report on Thursday, so just the day before its shares were suspended. In that report, it said that it was confident that it it was a going concern, uh, but the ASX is obviously a bit concerned about the independent auditor's assessment of that. So the status at the moment is that those shares have been suspended. For how long will the shares be suspended, do we know? At this stage, we don't know. I have contacted Can Group. I heard back from them this morning. They said that they're in communication with the ASX and they're not able to comment at this stage. It has debts of about $64 million. Uh, last year, it reported an operating loss of $14.34 million. At this stage, it's looking for funding. Uh, the company said in its financial report that it was looking for funding or refinancing options and it was in discussions uh, with some parties around that. So I think it's uh, TBC on that at this stage. For those who don't know Can Group and their operations, where are they located and, and how many people are they employing? So officially it is a, a secret location. It's on in the outskirts of Mildura. They've got a very large glasshouse set up. It's the size of four Melbourne cricket grounds. So 
They've really decided to go at scale. They employ about 40 employees. A lot of people who've come in from horticulture, they're they're working with the medicinal cannabis plants, pruning them, planting them, uh, transferring them around the facility. It's a very high-tech facility, and they've invested an, a huge amount of money into it, millions of dollars. At uh, this stage, as far as we know, that's that's still operating. That's rural reporter Elsie Kennedy there with the latest on Can Group, which has uh, been suspended uh, due to concerns about debts and future funding plans uh, on the ASX. It's uh, coming up to 11 minutes to one on the New South Wales Country Hour. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. On the text on the transmission line, we've got this text uh, which is saying, I was going to text into one about Energy Co, but uh, we've heard enough of that, they're saying. They say their experience... Uh, their experience with the unwelcome acquisition of their land was actually pretty fair. Uh, but then they say that the 3G phone service won't allow them to send a text, though. So two bites of the cherry there, two issues in one from that text. It's, uh, as I said, it's 11 minutes to one on the country hour. Before we go to markets, though, it's been a busy weekend at the New England Northwest uh, with three agricultural shows for locals to choose from. Tamworth, Baraba and uh, Armadale shows were all opening their gates to the crowds and at the Tamworth show, cattle were among the highlights. Dairy steward Brian Wilson told Lara Webster he was excited to see so many young people interested in the industry. Yeah, it's great. We've um, had a really good response from the local dairy farmers and um, yeah, really good entries. We've had 50 head entered and should be a really good quality show tomorrow. Well, I've got to say the quality of the the cows I'm seeing here at the moment in front of me, they're looking pretty good. Yeah, they are. And a lot of the exhibits here um, will be going off to Sydney show at, um, at the end of March. So, yeah, it's really high quality. Something where you two, the Wilson family, have had quite a good run and over many years at the Royal Sydney. So I imagine you'll be heading down there as well. Yeah, we've entered a team again and, yeah, looking forward to it. And, yeah, it's our annual working holiday at the Easter show. <laughs> Well, before we go to Sydney, let's come back here to where we are in Tamworth. Tell me, uh, what's been involved in you getting your cattle along with your family and everyone here ready for the Tamworth show? Oh, look, it's a big effort. Um, we, we probably took a few shortcuts just with um, how hot it's been this year and uh, it sort of sneaked up on us pretty quick, Tamworth show, so we probably haven't quite put the preparation in that, that we probably should have, but... Um, yeah, it's a family affair and um, we've got, brought along a lot of young ones that haven't been shown before this year and giving them a run to see how they go. So, um, no, looking forward to it. And of course, being a steward, tell me, what are you seeing in the quality across everyone? And of course, you've got a lot of young exhibitors here as well, which must be lovely to see. It is exciting, the, the young people that are involved um, in the dairy industry. It's... It, um, has a bit bit of negative press the dairy industry but when you go along to a show and you see so many young people that are enthusiastic about the business and and are here wanting to be involved that does um yeah that gives you great sort of encouragement to keep going and yeah it should be good and we'll have some strong youth classes in the morning first up so feel that hope yourself as you say the years there's good and bad news and we hear so much about needing more young dairy farmers but does it give you hope when you stand here and you go to the Sydney Royal Show and you see the next generation? Oh, it does. I mean, it, it's, a great, it's a great way to make a living if you can do it, dairy farming. And there's no doubt it's a great way for young people to, to grow up on a dairy farm. It sort of teaches them a great work ethic and, a, you know, the value of family and, and all that. So, 
It's just at the end of the day, you, you have to make enough money to keep going. As that's the only issue with it all. Um, there's there's enough young people that want to do it if they can make money out of it. And one of the young exhibitors here, and the next generation in the dairy industry, is Atunga's Lara Coombs. Lara, let's just start with being here today. You look very excited. You have the biggest smile on your face. <laughs> but what's it like to be here with your dairy cattle? Uh, it's really good. It's good to get involved with like my family and my friends are here as well. It's really good experience. That's Atunga's Lara Coombs ending that report from Lara Webster. It's uh, seven minutes to one. Time for markets. First up to Bendigo Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Slight lift in supply, but a big drop of in buyer demand, particularly for sheep. Everything was cheaper except for small bag lambs, which held their value and looked to be selling well in comparison to everything else today. Heavier processing lambs over 24 kilos carcass weight were 5 to $15 down in a sale that got progressively cheaper as it went. Export lambs over 30 kilos carcass weight from 174 to a top of $224 for a big spread of 5.50 to 6.50 cents a kilo, depending on where they sold in the auction run. The average cost being around 5.90 to 6.10 cents a kilo. Good trade lambs 130 to 159. The average price pulled back to about 5.80 cents to processors. But light lambs still firm at 100 to 125 for the better crossbreds with frame and 60 to 90 for decent small types. The mutton market opened 20 to $30 cheaper, but by the end of the run was up to $50 down on a week ago as the sale turned to shite with multiple buyers pulling up. There were sheep down to a buck a kilo again, a lot of sheep from 10 to $60 a head, big weathers to a top of $88. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Let's go to Corowa Sheep and Lambs now. Good afternoon, agents. Penned a smaller yarding for a total of just under 12,000 sheep and lambs. A large portion of the yard was made up of light lambs with feeder buyers and processors operating. Most regular buyers were operating in a cheaper market. Heavy trade lambs slipped 13 to $15, 131 to 150 to average 600 cents per kilo carcass weight. Heavy lambs eased $13, 158 to 190 few extra heavy export types sold from 194 to 204. Heavy trade merino lambs sold from 128 to 148 and light lambs to the processor slipped $14 selling from 86 to 103. Feeder lambs sold from 92 to 125. Mutton slipped 25 to $65. Heavy crossbred use from 42 to 68. Heavy merino use 76 to 88. And trade sheep sold from 34 up to $70. I'm Caroline Ronald for M. LA at Corowa. Let's go to Dubbo Sheep and Lambs now. Good afternoon. The lamb numbers improved to 16,750. The quality also showed an improvement. There were good runs of trade dorpers, a few more heavy and extra heavy lambs. Light lambs still remain in short supply. The market is selling to stronger trends and there's still some of the bigger, heavier lambs to sell and big runs of trades. Light two-score processing lambs are $11 stronger, 57 to 113. The light trades are 6 dearer, 110 to 144, and averaging 620 to 640. The medium and heavy trades firm to 3 dearer, 132 to 155, averaging 630 to 650. Heavy weights to 30 kilos are 4 to 5 stronger, 144 to 205, averaging 645 to 670, and extra heavies have reached $228. Hoggets are firm, reaching 130, and they're still... 
12,000 sheep to sell. And this has been Graham Richard. Let's go to Wagga Cattle now. Good afternoon. Due to a significant breakdown earlier today, only a fraction of the 5,300 cattle have been sold. Presently, there's a firm market for heavy cows, commanding prices between 2.40 and 2.66. Demand from domestic processors remains robust, propelling heavy steers and bullocks up five to ten cents. Now selling at 2.80 to 3.26. Heavy heifers, destined for processors, have seen a gain of ten cents, fetching 2.85 to 3.12. Queensland feedlots are showing keen interest in steers weighing 400 to 500 kilos, resulting in a price jump of 14 cents for well-bred type with prices ranging from $3 to $3.88. Lightweights are trading between $3 and $3.76. Feeder steers in the trade category are selling at $3.15 to $3.25, while trade heifers are commanding prices from $2.90 to $3. Feeder heifers are mostly steady at this point, priced at $2.55 to $3.09. With the balance of the stock yet to be sold, I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Let's go to Forbes Cattle now. Numbers lifted this sale with agents yarding 1,074 head. Quality was mixed but there with some good lines of well-bred cattle offered along with the planer and secondary types. The usual bars are present competing in a fairly steady market. Yearling steers to feed held steady to sell from 300 to 360 cents a kilo. Finished lines to processors were also firm to receive from 270 to 320. The heifer portion fluctuated with quality with those to feed selling from 270 to 315, while processors paid from 270 to 318 for the better types. Heavy steers and bullocks ranged in price from 285 to 318. Grown heifers sold from 260 to 291. Cows also held steady with heavy two score from 222 to 246, three score from 243 to 257. A large run of PTIC cows to restockers sold from 248 to 262. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. And finally to Tamworth cattle now, James Armitage. Good afternoon. A preference for steers from restocks and feedlots resulted in a much narrower price range in comparison to that of the heifers and an increased penny of 2,300 very mixed quality cattle. All the regular buyers were in attendance. Lightweight steers keenly sought by restockers sold a deer of trends as much as 10 cents a kilo with weaners up to 330 kilos reaching 436 cents. Light and medium weight heifer weaners to restockers sold from 270 to 319. Medium and heavyweight yearling steers to feed saw little change 336 to 370 and 316 to 365 cents respectively. Medium weights to restockers posted strong gains reaching 436 cents a kilo. Again, not a lot of change on the medium weight yielding heifers to feed 280 to 330, restockers paying to 340. Heavyweights to feed a little deer at 310 to 326. A handful of heavy ground steers were shade deer at 300 to 320. A similar trend the best of the ground heifers. Affirmed a slightly dearer trend in the cow market with heavy three and four scores 240 to 275 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Tamworth. And that's the market information for today and the uh, Telstra 3G, 4G transition issues still going off on the text line. You've been listening to The Country Hour. It's coming up to news time.